Good morning. It is always good to be with you. So I, I need you to, to picture this conversation. It starts, and he has no real business speaking to her, but he does it anyway. So he offers her a warm, genuine smile, and he asks her, would you share some water with me? And she can't believe that, that he's speaking to her. More than that, she can't believe that he's asking to, to share something with her. Here they are in the middle of the day, the sun shining brightly, which means this conversation is playing out in a place where all kinds of people from town can see it happening. And they're going to have their own thoughts and concerns. There's going to be rumors that start to fly because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And, and more than that, she's a woman who everyone knows around town has a very complicated history. But there he is smiling at her and asking for a drink. And there's a part of her that just wants to, to go ahead and, and dip her jar into Jacob's well and, and give him a drink real quick, quickly and, and hurry off. And for this whole awkward social interaction to end, there's a part of her that, that just doesn't understand what angle he's working. There's a part of her that, that wishes he would just stop trying to interact with her because Jews don't talk to Samaritans and and men of good reputation don't speak to women of questionable reputation. And the, the whole thing just shouldn't be happening. But, but there's a part of her that, that's curious as to why he's having this conversation with her at all. And so they continue to speak to one another. This Jew and this Samaritan, this man of, of noble character and this woman of, of questionable character... And she says, look, I, I don't know. What's going on here? I, I, don't, I don't understand what it is that you're, you're trying to do, but in case you don't understand, that's not how this story's supposed to go. You and I are, are not supposed to speak. We're supposed to pass one another on the street and, and not have any sort of an interaction. Certainly not like this. We, we come from different worlds. Why are you asking me for anything? And he says to her, I believe still with that warm smile on his face, if, if you knew the kind of gift that, that I could give you, if, if you knew the, the love and the, the mercy and the peace, if, if you knew who you're really speaking to, you wouldn't say that to me. You wouldn't point out our differences. You, you wouldn't decide that we shouldn't be speaking. And it wouldn't really be me asking you for a drink of water, but you'd be asking me for living water. Now, this is just as confusing to her as, as it is to us. What? It's hot, it's the middle of the day, he's thirsty, he's talking about water. Suddenly he's not talking about water, even though he says it's, it's living water. And he's, he's talking about it like it's something more than just a physical thirst, that, that, that this water could help quench. And, 
And he does. He says, this, this water could change your life. And so she, she wants to know what in the world he's talking about. And I have to think at this point, she's, she's as frustrated as, and confused as, as she's ever been in talking to somebody, a stranger that she's never met before. And she says, look, I don't, I don't know what, what it is you're trying to sell here, but this is good water. Jacob... Jacob came to this well. You, you somehow think you have access to something that I don't. If, if, you, if you know so much about water, then, then tell me more about what, what it is, how, how my life's going to change, what's going to happen if I have some of this living water you're talking about. Show me. We're going to pick the conversation up together in John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Madam, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now, this is, a, this is a really strange conversation that takes place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And it moves from a very normal conversation in terms of, of what they're talking about. And, and it suddenly turns into something a whole lot deeper. And she's not expecting that, just like you and I wouldn't be expecting that. For a, a stranger, maybe somebody that, that belongs to a different social group than, than we tend to be around. A, 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 somebody that we, we understand that there's all, all kinds of things about them that we, we don't yet understand, right? That just, just think of somebody in, in your life or somebody uh, that you've been around that you just don't quite relate to, that you don't. You wish you knew them better than you do, but you don't exactly know how to get them, get, get that relationship with them to a place where you can really talk about those things. So you're careful. You're on guard. We all have relationships like that, right? Where we try to be kind, we try to interact, but we, we do that at arm's distance. And that's what's going on at the beginning of the conversation. It's just about water. And then Jesus starts talking about living water, water that can change her life. And suddenly, before you know it, we've moved from talking about being physically thirsty to being spiritually thirsty. We've moved from talking about just two people interacting to the deepest longings of this woman's heart. And that shift takes place in the conversation 
through worship language. That's, that's how they get from talking about normal everyday water to talking about eternal life and a relationship with God that's going to change everything for her. Now here's what I find to be really interesting about this woman. Is with as, as complicated as the backstory as she has, and we'll get to that in a moment, she figures out that she has stumbled across somebody, a, a Jewish man, a rabbi, a teacher, who welcomes her and speaks to her when she's not used to that happening at all. In speaking to him, she finds out that he's a prophet because he knows things about her that he shouldn't know. And instead of talking more about the fact that she has had several failed relationships in her life and is now living in a relationship that, that is not, it's not what God has intended for her from the beginning of her life, instead of talking about her, she says, I can see you're a prophet. I have a worship question for you. I have a doctrinal question about worship that I'd like for you to settle for me. Now, that's a strange response. But here's, here's what I think we really need to understand, right? In this, this second conversation we're having about what it means to be people of worship, and it's this, that it is always tempting for us to move past focusing on the truth about ourselves so that we can hurry up and get to a place where we're debating about the doctrinal truth about worship. Because talking about ourselves, telling the truth about ourselves as worshipers is always more uncomfortable than moving back to a place where we say, okay, enough about me. Let's have a doctrinal discussion about true worship. I love our heritage. I love the fact that my parents as adults met Jesus when they met people who belonged to the churches of Christ. I love how we are committed to being people of the word. I love that we are committed to each local congregation seeking God's will for them and, and trying their best to embody the Jesus way of life wherever it is that, that our churches happen to be. I love the fact that we are careful and conscientious when it comes to pretty much everything. Here's the challenge. We can start to think that because we, we agree on all the right terms and, and we can put things in all the same categories, that that is primarily what God is wanting from us, not just sometimes, but all the time, and especially in this sacred time that we gather together each week. And so worship can become something that we are doing, and we are trying to do it exactly right so that it will be pleasing and acceptable to God, by which we mean we will be pleasing and acceptable to God. The only problem is there is nothing that you and I can ever do to make ourselves be more pleasing and acceptable to God. We can't do it. We, you and I cannot do anything that will make God love us more. We also can't really do anything that will make God love us less. 
That's God's decision. That's God's work. That's God's commitment. That doesn't belong to us. And here's one of the things I'm, I'm afraid we struggle with in our tradition. We are so concerned with our our side of the partnership when it comes to a relationship with God that we at times put way too much importance in our own role in, 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 in relating to God and, and what it means to be people who are encountering God, that we start to think that if we don't do everything exactly right, that God will walk away from us disappointed, shaking his head and saying, you guys, if you just jump through all the right hoops, I'd love you. You'd be acceptable to me. Now, I've never heard anyone say that, but it's, like, it's, it's in the water. <laughs> it's in the water we drink. So here's what's interesting to me. I have met countless Church of Christ people who have gone to church every Sunday for as, as long as they can remember, but, but at some basic level, they're uncomfortable and they're still thirsty for the living water that Jesus is talking about here. The water of belonging. The water of welcome. The water of acceptance that comes before you prove that you're acceptable to God. That, that we're still fronting, pretending, that, that, that at some level... We don't just put on our, our Sunday best on the outside. We try to put on our Sunday best on the inside. And we come here and, and then we do something called worship where we don't really tell the whole truth about ourselves. True worship is where you and I are able to trust that God's truth is better and deeper and stronger than our truth. I'm not talking about the way we understand absolute truth when I say our truth. I'm talking about the truth about you, your truth. Now, for this Samaritan woman, the struggle has to do with sin. And for every single person in this room, if we could find a place every Sunday for just a little while, to not use worship as a way to jump through a bunch of hoops that we then, I think the temptation is if I do all the right things and say all the right things and sing all the right songs and say all the right prayers, that that could, that could count towards a relationship with God that I really, I, I don't know how to have anywhere else at any other time. That, that somehow correct, right worship would then replace the relationship with God that worship is intended to, to not only create but to nurture. You know, it's, it would be like if, if in your marriage you only related to your spouse according to a book that you opened and you followed the instructions every single time. So, you know, I, I open the book and I find out, okay, well, the first thing I need to do is compliment Lauren today. And so I, okay, you, uh, it says here that you look good. So you, you look nice, and that's, that's, it's good. And then it says here that I needed to get a babysitter, so I did that. And uh, I don't know how they're going to do, but we have a babysitter. And now it says here we need to get in the car, and then something about a seatbelt, and then we're, we're going to go somewhere, and I'm going to have to pick it. I hope you like the place I pick. That's not much of a relationship. 
that, that you can, if you're not careful, be so worried about getting it right that the very act of trying to be with somebody becomes so artificial and so structured that it doesn't happen. That the actual act of worship gets in the way of you trusting that God knows the whole truth about you and God's truth is better and deeper and stronger than that. And that God wants you in his life. It is so convicting to me that this woman's temptation is, you're a prophet, you know God's heart, can you, make, can you help me understand here the exact way I'm supposed to worship? Now the question is, what's the anxiety that's driving that question? There's a few. I think in her case, it's mostly about the fact that in every way, John wants us to know that she on her own is an outsider when it comes to being a part of the people of God. She's a woman in an undeniably uh, male-dominated world. She can't even take care of herself in all likelihood, um, financially and other ways, unless she's living with a man. So every time a marriage fails, she has to go find another man. It's why she's living with somebody now who's not her husband. She's a Samaritan, not a Jew. Um, the, the, the list just goes on and on of all the ways this woman is not good enough. And I think that's what her question is. Underneath the, the worship logistical question The fear is, I'm not good enough. I'm worshiping God in the wrong way on the wrong mountain, and it's not going to work. Now, that's, that's a question we need to wrestle with. What does it mean for worship to work? You go to Genesis 4, and it seems like with Cain and Abel, the first two uh, people that we have in Scripture where we have kind of a sense that, uh, that they have this, this sacred time where they're trying to worship God, They don't have an order of worship. They don't have a rule book. They don't have any, any clear way of knowing exactly what to do, but they're trying to express to God that they love God and they trust God and they want God in their life. So they give a sacrifice to God. Abel gives uh, the first of his flocks of sheep and uh, Cain gives some of the, 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 the produce of the land. He's a farmer. And so he sacrifices that to God. We don't know much about the story. What we do know is this. Something happened where God made it clear to both Cain and Abel that he was happier with Abel's act of worship than Cain's. And Cain follows Abel out to a field and kills him. And I think what's going on, it's frustratingly vague in Genesis 4, I think what's going on is that Cain thinks worship is a, it's a tool, it's a strategic mechanism to get God to do something for Cain. That, that somehow worship is a strategic mechanism to get God on the hook to say, look, I did what, what I should do, and so now your response to me should be what I want. I, I gave you a sacrifice, God, So you either need to love me more, or if you're not going to love me more after I do this, then at least bless me more. And if you're going to bless me more, I have a list of the blessings I'd like you to give me. I, I have to believe that some part of us struggles with, we come here, and what we're hoping for is that we'll do all the right things and say all the right things and sing all the right songs and pray the right prayers, and then somehow God needs to respond in a very specific way for us. 
And I don't know how we would describe it, but, but I'm guessing we would say we want God to like us more or love us more or bless us more or there's something that we're expecting. But see, here's the problem. That's not what worship is. It's not a strategic mechanism to get God to do what we want God to do. Worship is where, like in Isaiah 6, we find out that the God of all creation wants to have a personal relationship with us, and we realize in that moment that we're not good enough for that. So we fall down and we say, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and you shouldn't be anywhere near me. And God's response to that every single time is, you're right. You aren't you aren't perfect, and there's nothing you're ever going to do to make yourself worthy of my love and my presence in your life. And yet, in spite of all that, I will do whatever it takes to purify you and cleanse you and prepare you. For what? Well, in Isaiah 6, to go out to other people and tell them this same truth, that a relationship with God is not negotiated. It is not a, it's, it's not something that we can manage through a tool, a strategic mechanism of worship where we do what God tells us to do so we can get what God tells us we'll get. That if that's what we're doing in worship, what we're, 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 we're missing the entire point. Because we have turned a relationship into a set of rituals, and then we settle for the rituals instead of a relationship. I don't want that. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. I want us to be careful and conscientious. I want us to search the scriptures carefully. I want us to try our best to do things in this room that we believe are pleasing to God. But I want us to do that from a place of gratitude. I want us to do that out of a sense of thankfulness for the grace that's already been given and will continue to be given. That we aren't here to get God to do something we want God to do that we're afraid that if we don't do it just right, God won't do it. That's not what worship is. There's nothing you and I can do to declare ourselves capable. There's nothing. So we confess that, that we're not capable. And we fall on the mercy of God. And we're thankful for that mercy. And then just like in Isaiah 6, we respond to that by saying, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. See, instead of worship being about getting God to do what we want God to do, worship should be us thanking God for what God's already done and then asking, what can we do? Show us where to go. Tell us who we need to talk to. Please help us. Don't let us settle for a set of rituals that we think can replace a relationship. Please don't do that, God. Don't let that happen to us. We are partners with God. We bring something to the table. But this relationship, it's only created and it's only nurtured at God's good mercy by God's good mercy, through God's good mercy. And if we forget that, if we start to think that, that there are simple, straightforward ways that, that we can just kind of go through mindlessly week after week after week, and that's going to be enough, then we are, we are settling for far too little when it comes to what we were created for. You're a prophet. I got a worship question for you. It's easy for us to look at that and think, what's, 
what's going on with this woman, but I think you and I know exactly what's going on with her. We know exactly what she's feeling. And of all the, the, the things that, that we struggle with, I, I, I think you and I need to do things in this room during this time that help open our hearts up to God without any barrier, without any pre- pretending or, or editing or, or trying to put ourselves in the best light possible. In, in Romans 8, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, it says the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit searches us and knows us and is able to speak to God with groans that words cannot express. In other words, the Spirit is able to speak to God the truth that you and I don't know how to say. But for that to happen, we have to open ourselves up for that that searching and that sifting process of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I find interesting is I have heard this passage preached throughout going to church, and, and we always get to the end where he says that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And almost always what I heard that explained as being is we worship from the heart, that's the spirit, and in truth we do it the right way. That's exactly, the, I think, the opposite of what Jesus is actually trying to say when he talks about spirit and truth, at least in this passage. Again, don't misunderstand me. Don't mishear me. I, I think it's important for us to be careful and considerate when, when we interact with God. But I also think that the phrase spirit and in truth is not about having a good heart or good motivations and then doing it right. In fact, the only other place the word true happens in the story is when he says, go call your husband. And she says, well, I, I don't have a husband. And, and he says, yeah, you're right. You've had five. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. What you have said is very true. Then in the same conversation, he says, the true worshipers of God worship in spirit and in truth. And I think what he's saying is worship is not just about you doing things in the right way. It's about you trusting God enough for God to know the truth about you. And that the Holy Spirit is the way that happens. That we partner with the Holy Spirit in letting God search us and know us and change us. The Holy Spirit can say things to you that you will never let me say to you. The Holy Spirit can convict you of things that that no one else can convict you of. The way we are changed from who we are into who God wants us to be is by trusting the Holy Spirit to know the truth about us and to speak the truth to us about ourselves and about our world and about our future. And that is who God wants us to allow allow his Holy Spirit to turn us into. Now, I I don't have a quick, easy, step-by-step process for that to happen, but I will say this. When we come in this room, it shouldn't be to put our best foot forward. It shouldn't be for us to to manage our image. It should be for us in our hearts to, to say, God, please search me and know me and tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. If that doesn't happen while we're in worship, we are wasting our time. I don't care if it's all technically correct. If we don't find a way to open our hearts up to God, to tell the truth about ourselves, and to trust that God's truth is what saves us from the truth about ourselves, then I don't know what we're doing. 
doesn't matter if our, we've got a tie and a suit and, and all the right references and, and all the right play. It doesn't, we're playing at worship. And I don't know why we would settle for that. I, I, want, I want us to long for more than that. So God calls that relationship through Jesus living water. Right? It's this ongoing renewing and refreshing of who we are and the desires we have and the people in our lives and how what God is doing in us is blessing them and helping them. He says, basically, not only will you not be thirsty anymore, but you'll, you'll have a spring inside of you. Surely, Jesus intends for that to be water that's shared. And I am convinced that one of the best ways you and I can experience the fact that God's truth is better and deeper and stronger than the truth about ourselves is for our brothers and sisters in this place to keep telling us that, to treat us that way, to say that we are more than who we're afraid we are, that we're better than we're, we're nervous about, that we, that we have things going on inside of us and in our lives that are, are from God and God alone, and that we recognize that, that we honor that in one another, and that we hold each other together, that somehow, some way, in this building, we become the experience of living water. Not through our efforts alone, but through opening our lives up to God and letting God work through us and speak through us and interact with one another in, in ways that, that we can't, you can't design it. You, you, you have to be open to it. You have to trust. Look, I, I like things to go according to plan. I like to have a plan. I like to be right. I even like it if I'm right and somebody else isn't. <laughs> None of that stuff. None of that should find its home in our worship experiences. None of it. Spirit searches us and knows us and helps us understand the truth about us and helps us believe once again that God's truth is better and deeper and stronger. Only you can make this decision. It doesn't it doesn't have to do with the order of worship. It doesn't have to do with, with the songs that we sing. It doesn't have to do with the scriptures that we read. The bottom line is, if you're not open, none of that's going to get in. You have to prepare yourself to be vulnerable, to trust, to tell the truth. Uh, one of the things that I, I want to do this morning uh, that has to do with speaking the truth is, is when it comes to the way we talk to God, the way that we pray. Um, this morning, we're blessed to have the Ferguson family with us. Uh, the Fergusons, I believe, left uh, about 10 years ago, uh, but they are still a part of our church family. And Scott and Sandy's daughter, Alyssa, uh, has been battling cancer for way too long. Um, and they're here this morning and I want us to pray over them. Um, and so I'm going to ask them to come up if, if they would, if they're willing to. Uh, in, in James chapter 5, uh, we're reminded that we are people of prayer, that we are people who rely on God, and that we are people who tell 
the truth to God, especially when we don't understand and, and we don't have the power to do what only God can do. Um, and so I'm going to ask the Fergusons to get close here. I promise I won't, won't bite. Hey, Jenna. And this, this is a church of prayer. This is a church that believes in prayer. And just like it says in James 5, that when any of us is sick, that we want the shepherds to pray over us, I'm going to ask for our shepherding couples, if they would, to join me on stage with the Fergusons. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask God the desires of our heart. Uh, And that is for God to work powerfully in Alyssa's life. And make all of us witnesses. If you if you know the Fergusons uh, from when they've been here before, and you want to join us, please come up as well. Let's pray. God, we lift Alyssa up to you this morning. And we want you to know that we love her. And we love this family. And we love you. And God, we we long for a day when nobody gets sick anymore. And we long for a day when children don't get sick anymore. And we don't understand. We don't. And there are, there are people in this room who, if they could, they would trade places with Alyssa. But we can't, we, we, we don't know how to make that, that miracle take place. We don't, we don't know We don't know the miracle that you are working, but God, we pray that you would continue to work a miracle of healing in her life. God, and I pray as honestly as I know how, God, I want you to physically heal her. I want you to release her body from the ravages of the illness that she has been fighting for too long. God, I pray that you would raise her up. And God, I pray that in the meantime that you would give Sandy and Scott and Jenna strength. That you would continue to give Alyssa strength and courage. God, I I look at this family and I see hope in the midst of suffering. And I thank you for that hope. And I'm begging you to take the suffering away. Take this cup away from them. Please, God. God, we, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's going to happen, but we confess that we believe that you will be in that future just as much as you are in our present, loving and caring and showing your grace and your mercy. And God, we, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving that we will all be your witnesses. God, we thank you for family. We thank you for belonging. We thank you for wanting a relationship with us that changes us and heals us and saves us. 
And we pray for that now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. There's too many times in life, there's too many times in worship where we just don't know exactly what to do next or what to say next. And I think it's in those moments, most often in my life, when I, I sense the nearness of God in ways that, that I just, I don't get to experience in other ways and, and times and places. And if, if we get too caught up in exactly what we're doing, that we, we start to forget why we're doing everything we do. If we get too caught up in how we're doing what we're doing, and we're missing why we're doing everything we're doing. You know, in the end, I think worship that's unacceptable to God is worship that lets us feel like we have done something to justify ourselves. That's unacceptable worship. Worship where we have, we have done things that make us feel sure about ourselves. Worship that makes us feel like we've got it all figured out and everybody else is still trying to figure it out. Worship that in the end makes us feel less reliant on God. That's unacceptable worship. That doesn't mean that God doesn't accept us. It doesn't mean that. And so, brothers and sisters, what I hope is that we can find a way, week after week after week, to practice inside of this room what we should be living outside of this room, and that is to let God in. To not be sure of ourselves. To not want to be right when everybody else is wrong, but to trust that God makes us right through his love. We're going to sing now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be ready to pray with you and receive you. I'm going to ask them to stand real briefly just so you can see where they are. Please go to them. If you want to talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to pray about someone in your life, if you want to pray about your own life, we want to be community for one another. So go to these couples as together we stand and sing.